Hi guys, welcome to the Revive Stronger podcast. I'm your host as always, Steve Hall, and I'm welcomed today by Andy Galpin. Um, You may have heard of Andy across the interwebs. He's got his own podcast and has been on loads of podcasts very similar to this one. And uh, he's a great speaker and also incredibly intelligent. Uh, He's written loads of articles as well and even a book, Unplugged, uh, which we won't be mostly delving into today unless it just comes up, uh, which will be absolutely fine. But if you don't know about Andy, I'll give a brief introduction to him. He has a degree in exercise science, master's in human movement sciences, a PhD in human bioenergenics. Um, He's now opened up his own lab um, in biochemistry and molecular exercise physiology and that's incredibly exciting. So he's doing loads of research at the moment and probably doing the most research on muscle fiber types, which is what we're gonna be delving into. Um, he really focuses attention on kind of teaching classes, running the lab, and I know having heard him on other podcasts, he kind of likes to do lots of things and not kind of get stuck in uh, one particular area. He does have a background in weightlifting, uh, grappling and American football, and at his heart, he is simply a storyteller and teacher, which I think kind of means you're a good uh, person to interview for a podcast because that is quite how they go. So I don't know if there's anything else you want to add there, Andy. Man, I think that's probably the most comprehensive intro I've ever been given in my life. So I can't add anything to that. (laughs) Well, that's excellent. Um, And if, I don't know, actually, we can start off with this. Is there anything exciting your lab is currently doing at the moment that you kind of want to, you can reveal to the audience? Man, I feel like everything we're doing in the lab is pretty exciting right now. So it really just depends. We have so many different wings that we are doing. We're about to uh, probably submit in the next month or so our manuscript for the weightlifting fiber type study. We just got the twins fiber type or the twins um, study that I've talked about a lot. That was just recently accepted and published about a week ago. Uh, so that's out there. We've got our epigenetics paper, which will be out very, very shortly as well. And then we've got a whole bunch of papers or studies that are in data collection right now that we've got some prelim data on. Some high intensity interval, intermittent, uh, some high intensity interval cycling. Sorry, um, looking at fiber type specific responses in signaling proteins, and particularly the signaling proteins and the substrates, rather, that are responsible for the post-exercise anabolic window and things like that, and how they differ between the fiber types uh, and between gender and things like that. So we've got a ton, man. It just (laughs) really depends on what you want to talk about. No, definitely. And I guess, like we spoke off air, um, a lot of this, well, anything to do with muscle is applicable to people who are seeking to develop their own muscle tissue or hold on to it when they're dieting and things like that. So um, I, I think... A quote I got from one of your articles that you wrote, I think it was for Renaissance Periodization, I'll make sure it's linked below, was that the most perpetuated myth is that muscle fiber type can't change with training. But I'd love to delve into maybe initially what the difference is between maybe a fast twitch and a slow twitch. What does that even mean? Um, And the the various in and outs of those fiber types that there are. And maybe actually we can start with that before I go on and ask a ton of questions and don't give you a chance. Well, be careful here because anything to do with those guys that are Renaissance periodization, man, I want nothing to do with <laughs> just a bunch of jokers. No, they're they're great. Uh, the it, it really, man, it depends on how detailed you want to get here too. So, on the very surface level, a fast twitch fiber is implicit with its name. Uh, so it twitches or it contracts faster than a slow twitch. And in fact, if you'd like, you can pop over to my YouTube page 
And I've got about a two and a half hour video where I trace the history of the nomenclature. So how we first developed or started to begin understanding that these fiber types were different, why the naming is, is what it is uh, and how it evolved and why it's so confusing. Uh, Cause it's actually very straightforward if you understand sort of the key to the mm -hmm. whole puzzle. But if you don't understand that key, then it's like reading a, a figure or a map without the legend. Yeah. Right? It's, it's impossible. Once you have the legend, you're like, oh, it's actually very, very simple. But again, at its most fundamental level, uh, the fast-switch fibers contract with more velocity. Uh, they are often bigger, but not always. And we can certainly get into that if, you, if you'd like. Uh, the other things that differentiate fast-switch fibers, they tend to be more glycolytic, which means they are better at using either phosphocreatine and or the anaerobic metabolism, uh, things like glycogen or glucose. Uh, Slow-switch fibers are the opposite, so they're far uh, better at using oxidation, uh, so whether that's be fat or glycolysis, the oxidative portion of that, for contractile purposes. So they tend to be more of your what we call anti-gravity, postural maintenance muscle fibers. So their benefit is to not necessarily produce a tremendous amount of muscle force, but really to be able to contract for sustained periods of time. So think your soleus, think your spinal erectors, think the muscles that keep your head from falling on its you know, face. So they need to be contracted at a low level, but for hour, literally hours yep. a day. So that is the very surface level. And if you want to dive deeper, we can. If you want to move on, it's up to you. Yeah, I think for the purposes of what our audience needs to understand, I don't think they need to kind of know the ins and outs and the depths of the physiology there. Maybe they can go over to your YouTube channel if you really go into that, and we can make sure that's linked below. Um, but I think a lot of people have kind of the conception, like you said, that you can't change them and from listening to yourself they are actually very plastic in that i think i heard like even from your diet your training your lifestyle gender all of these things influence them and i'd love you to maybe delve into various aspects of this maybe starting off with um, how even maybe your diet could impact things sure so i would recommend you venture over to that article i did write for renaissance periodization it is the most concise and extremely easy to understand the take of what's going on here i think anyways <laughs> Um, we'll have to back up just a touch then to do that because it's important to understand the argument about whether they change with the physical exercise or training or nutrition. It's not even remotely close to de debatable anymore. Uh, there are now thousands of articles. We now not only know they change, but we know the exact mechanisms. We know how it works. We know uh, the molecular mechanisms. We know the signaling mechanisms. We know exactly what to do to cause it, what not to cause it. So it, it's, it is as well developed as you could possibly imagine. It's not even debatable and if you find someone that thinks there's a debate it's extremely obvious that they don't really know what they're doing right? they don't do this area and there's no offense like I, i'm sure i butcher shit all the time for yeah. neuro or cardiovascular stuff but it's really beyond reproach whether this can happen so i told you there are fast twitch and slow twitch that's not exactly the whole story really there is fast twitch and, and we'll have to start using some nomenclature here to make this easier so there's slow twitch which is type one there's fast twitch, and in this context, we call that 2A. And there's also a faster twitch, which is 2X. Uh, now, some of you may be older listeners remember hearing 2B, mm -hmm. but humans don't have 2B. Mm -hmm. uh, they only have 2X. So you have a slow, you have a fast, and you have a mega fast or ultra fast, however you want to think about that. Well, that's actually not the truth either. <laughs> in fact, what it really is, and this is what I would, if this is a real muscle physiology podcast or something, uh, we would talk about. I really don't even think that there is individual fiber types for the most part. It's really just a giant ass continuum. 
Right. And so anytime we find an individual fiber, it is somewhere within this continuum, being the far left, being the slowest possible, being the far right, being the fastest possible. Because what actually ends up happening is a huge percentage, and sometimes in most people, most of your fibers are not fast or slow twitch. They're what are called hybrids. So there are individual muscle fibers that are at the same time part slow twitch, part fast twitch, or part fast twitch, part ultra fast twitch, or even part all three. So we find fibers regularly that have all three fast, slow, and ultra fast in the exact same fiber. Wow. And in fact, I can break this news to you right now. I haven't made this, I haven't told anybody this probably. Oh, amazing. <laughs> three people total ever know this. But my, my postdoc, Irene Tobias, and she's got several talks up on my YouTube channel as well, has recently identified, and I'm fairly confident this is an actual finding now, that we are finding some fibers that are hybrids, that are type slow, and type mega fast. But they don't have the fast twitch wow. on <laughs> I don't know what the hell that means, no. if that's a port <laughs> at all, but it's never been identified, so it's a brand new fiber type. And again, that really to me just highlight, further highlights the fact that it, this is all just one big continuum. We also know several things that the fiber, and if you remember anything about muscle physiology, the length of an individual muscle fiber can be very, very long. And so the example we give in an anatomy class all the time is the sartorius, which is that muscle that kind of runs from that front pointy part of your hip bone all the way to the inside of your knee. Oh, yes. Okay. It causes, if you were to, well, I'm not, okay, Google sartorius. It's too distracting here. But the point is, some people say that the fibers in the sartorius can run the entire length of that muscle. Which means you can have individual muscle cells that are 6, 8, 10 inches long, maybe. Now, what we know is the fiber is not the same type the entire length of that fiber. So it might be slow twitch near the origin, might be fast twitch in the middle, and it might be slow twitch again or a hybrid or something else. And so again, I, I'm really trying to emphasize it. It really is just one big continuum. It's not mm -hmm. these very distinct. So when you recognize that, then you understand it is, it is that way for a reason. It's because the fiber wants to be able to be very specific to the task and demands. It comes yep. all the way back to said principle, right? It's a specific adaptation to an imposed demand. What are you telling me to do? What are you asking me to do? What are you not telling me to do? I will adapt so that I'm optimized to either save energy or maximize production. So, yes, um, in fact, our twins paper, I can tell you more about that, but this is a study that was just published or so a week ago with monozygous twins. So this means twins that had the exact same DNA, right? They're they're literally clones. And uh, they had about 30 years of differing exercise history. And we saw uh, in one set of the twins, uh, this was a, an endurance runner, did um, like uh, Ironmans and half marathons and things like this and had not stopped competing for 30 years, he was about 90, 95% slow twitch. And his monozygous twin brother, so the exact same DNA, was about 50% slow twitch. So it's not like, okay, can we move? Well, there's a debate here. There's no fucking debate. Yep. <laughs> it's like, okay, maybe they can move like a little bit. No, like this is literally, you went from 50%, your genetics said 50%, you trained it to 90%. So really the question, and I could go over every, whatever you want, pick your thing. You mentioned diet. There are papers that have come out showing resveratrol, uh, high fat, high sugar diets, um, apple, some of the, the polyphenols in apples. Mm -hmm. All these can result in changing your fiber type. Now, not all that is in human yet. Some of that was in monkeys and some other things like that. And so don't take that 
too literal. Yep. Like, don't be like, oh my God, don't change, eat apples because I'll make such a type. <laughs> like, but I think the point is the fact that every single thing that you're ingesting in your body, in fact, carbon, carbon dioxide. So there's extreme, very clear evidence that carbon dioxide concentrations can change fiber type. No doubt. Every single thing in your body is responding to stimuli, up or down. And so all of it is caused, and it is a constant mosaic. It's not sitting there. It is changing in response to every single thing you do. I would have mm -hmm. to imagine there are tons of other variables we're simply not looking at that are resulting in fiber type change as well. Of course your training is doing it. And so the answer to all of this really is it's not a question of if it changes. That's completely absurd. Well, the question really now becomes you have unlimited plasticity. So how much your fiber type can change is unlimited. It only comes down to exposure. And us as biological entities, we die pretty fast. So given enough time or exposure, and exposure is a function of both time and load, right? Mm -hmm. How often, how much you're doing something, factor that into how, much, how long it's occurring, that is going to tell you exactly how much you're going to change. And then you're also fail or prey to the curve, right? So at the beginning of changing stimulus, you're going to change more rapidly. And as you continue the same stimulus over time, the rate of change will slow. Yep. But that doesn't mean it doesn't stop changing. And so with that fundamental background, I think you can kind of understand what, we're, what the game we're playing here. Uh, it's every single thing you do matters, probably your sleep. I guarantee you circulating testosterone and estrogen for both genders. Uh, all this stuff is playing a role in the composition of your fiber type. So very long answer, but there you go, man. No, I mean, absolutely fascinating. I think the the idea that it's kind of on a continuum is really, really powerful, I think, for the listeners to kind of conceptualize and utilize that, and especially kind of especially thinking about the Sartorius, and I'm just picturing like a shredded bodybuilder, like with the quads and with the Sartorius like coming down there, and yeah, it's, it's a big muscle. So just the fact mm -hmm. along there, it can all be different. Um, I, I know something that kind of, I think... Brad Schoenfeld has spoken about is I think it's more of a theory than necessarily a, an actual fact that he has but it's kind of bodybuilders are bigger than powerlifters because they work within a range of kind of um, rep ranges and they hypertrophy the fast and the slow twitch muscle fibers and powerlifters because they're just lifting in the heavy uh, rep range they're not so much hypertrophying every single muscle fiber is that something that you think is got any credence to it or if we developed things since then i think it was in his max muscle plan book yeah well i'll give him a pass because the max muscle plan book i think is fairly old it's quite old <laughs> eight or so years or something like that so the answer to your question is yes and no uh we'll start with the no if you pay attention to any power lifter on the surface level yeah they do low repetition high load stuff but you would be very difficult it'd be very difficult to find a power lifter who didn't also do mega sets of 10 12 15 20 sets of 100 their accessory work is at extremely high volumes and so i think it's very amateur to say that oh they don't do high repetitions like bodybuilders do yes they do they do a ton of it maybe not in the two weeks out before competition but eight weeks out, 10 weeks out, 12, they are doing a bunch of high volume stuff. Pay attention to any Elite FTS, go watch any Dave Tate, like what, anything Louis Simmons has done, any, they're all going to talk about the just huge, really fatiguing uh, stuff. Now, they're not doing it to extreme exhaustion multiple times a week in the same muscle group that bodybuilders are doing. Um, so there is a scale there, but it's not like they're doing only sets of one to three all year round for a muscle. Mm -hmm. Like that's, that's not happening. 
but you know, this is what happens when you take a bodybuilder fitness guy and you ask him to talk about real sports like powerlifting and weightlifting. I'm just kidding. I'm totally being sarcastic, <laughs> giving Brad a bunch of shit here. Um, but so the other part of it, though, I think he is true. In fact, we are in agreement. And the reason why I could make fun of him like that is uh, because we are actually trying to work on a project together right now. Cool. And um, we've actually submitted funding um, application for a large amount of funding to do a project to really answer that question because he and I are in agreement um, on this. I think there is very clear evidence, indirect but I think it's strong indirect evidence that suggests a different repetition range probably does elicit fiber type specific hypertrophy. Cool. And this is the question, right? And I've actually spoken at length with Ben Pakulski, who's a very well-known bodybuilder yeah. uh, at, at this. And he fundamentally believes that if he would have understood this, it would have changed a lot of his, he would have had a lot more success in bodybuilding. He would have done things a little bit differently because he don't, he doesn't think that he's sufficiently addressed the fiber to the faster fiber types. Uh, and so he could have gotten better uh, in some specific areas. And I'll let you jump over to his podcast because he talks about that quite a bit. Mm -hmm. um, but yes, um, I, I do fundamentally believe that. And for those people that that have maybe heard of this a little bit, some people say, well, it's a motor unit activation thing. Well, that is partially true, but there's enough evidence to suggest when you take motor unit recruitment out of the equation, so size principle is out of the equation. And I, I'll talk about the mechanism if you want here that there still is an endogenous difference between the ability to hypertrophy in the fastest soldier fibers when given the exact same exposure. Uh, we have isolated that, and I've published this many times over uh, in, in different mechanisms. So most people have heard of AKT and mTOR and things mm -hmm. like that. Those simply exist at a greater concentration and a greater activation in the fast-twitch muscle fibers. So it would suggest that if you give them the exact same stimuli, um, they just, they're going to have more signals to turn on protein synthesis, and gene expression rather, that is going to activate protein synthesis. So yeah, I fundamentally believe there is going to be a different prescription. And in fact, we've tried to address this now multiple times, but it's just impossible to get funding um, for this, particularly in the States right now. It's getting, with the current administration, we're just getting hammered with funding. Uh, so it's going to be very difficult. We're not going to get this grant that I submitted, but <laughs> we tried anyways. Um, yeah, I, I think that is very fundamentally true. Uh, and, and we have enough evidence to suggest you have a combination of both fiber type specific hypertrophy as well as shifting of fiber types that play a very critical role in how you train. And I think where this really can help people is there's a difference between, say, just competition prep yep. and your off season or your building phase or whatever, however, terminology, depending on how often you're competing and things like that. And this is where I think can make people, um, we can take a look back at say what the long-term athletic development folks do for traditional field sports and say, hey, they're onto something here where we need to be able to think differently about the six weeks out, the four weeks out from competition prep and the eight months and the one year, two year, five year, 10 year plan, because this is gonna really start to pay dividends over those long into your career. Mm -hmm. no, that's fascinating and I guess the question would be for the listeners and well, even for myself, what are the, the practical implications of this? Is this a periodization of repetition ranges and um, how would people go about that? I guess there's a yep. few kind of people talking about how periodization isn't important for bodybuilders, yet this is generally studies based on not elite bodybuilders. So I guess that's yep. kind of makes that well, less of a concern. But anyway, I, I know you've got something to say, so I'll let you go for it. No, no, Eric Helms can go fuck himself on that. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Also, a great guy. Just awesome guy. He's right. I, I, I've been a huge fan of his for a long time. So, no. Uh, 
Yes and no. I think that the point they're trying to make with those comments, because I have I know exactly what you're referring to there. There is merit for sure in what they're saying that, hey, look, this is not the same periodization scheme that we all the research that was on the periodization needed for a weightlifter to compete and maximize. This is not going to apply to somebody. Mm -hmm. Uh, And their their point is very taken there. Having and Eric has spoken at length about the difference between uh, program and you know periodization program design. Yeah. Right. So you can go check out. I think he's got a YouTube video up on that or something. Uh, probably, and, and he has very good points in that discussion there. And so yes, but I, I think there is absolutely still room for both. So the practical recommendations I would personally give: number one is I don't know, and that's the most important thing I can say here right now. And, at this point, it's I would still say listen to people who have been doing this. Mm-hmm. I have not trained anybody for a bodybuilding competition in my life or fitness or figure or anything. So I, I study muscle. I study athletes. I study human. But I've never done this with 5,000 clients over a 25-year career. Yeah. At this point, listen to those people. Um, do the best you can. But they're going to know more than I am because I don't know. This is theory. But having said all that, I think what to me this means, uh, this is based on my work directly with athletes in other sports, a lot of them, uh, and the evidence base and all the practitioners I consult with. A couple of things. I think it's really important to introduce variety into your food. The way you eat, the style you eat. If you're eating the same, you know, I want an apple and I eat broccoli and chicken and brown rice. If you're eating that year-round competition out of competition and all you're doing is adjusting in the amount of the macros, I think you're going to do yourself a massive disservice, uh, both muscle and other for a bunch of nutrition reasons why. But I think that is number one is you need to introduce different styles of eating. It's okay to play with intermittent fasting. It's okay to play with uh, eating smaller meals, eating larger meals, different macros, different groups. Uh, go keto for a while. Go non-keto. Do all these different things. I think that's very, very helpful to keep yourself healthy for the long term um it, you know when you're t- i helped uh there's this guy uh he's a ufc fighter well he's a former ufc fighter named jail Sonnen. and i helped him write a book that came out last year called the four pack abs oh and he had a it's like a, a diet book for the exact opposite of probably who's listening right now but it's kind of like for the 45 year old dad you know right and it's sort of like, hey, you're not going to look like these 23-year-old dudes who compete in fitness and figure competitions. <laughs> you need to reset your expectations. And this is one of the reasons why you're failing in your diet, actually, is because you're, like, your expectations are you're going to even look like, and this is the funny part you said, that people that look like that usually look like that for a total of an hour or five hours or whatever, right? Mm-hmm. Ten hours. Who cares? They don't really look like that. It's a point. Or they're Photoshopped or they're 21 or they're on drugs. <laughs> it's like, all right. So, yes, it's fine. You could suck up. My point with that is you could do a lot of dumb shit, and it might work for a small amount of time, especially if you're young and you're very resilient. But if you really want to talk about, hey, I want to maintain this figure and this this physique in my 30s and my 40s, yeah. this is when I think you need to start introducing variety. And and then I would say the exact same would be the exact same answer for the with the training. Is you should not just stay at eight to 12 repetitions. <laughs> forever and say like oh periodization doesn't matter for bodybuilders therefore you know i've been doing this program for eight months i haven't changed anything and i'm still making gains Mm -hmm. well maybe but again are you interested in eight years down the road if you are this is when i think it's critically that you should run that whole spectrum you should do things down to singles all the way up to hundreds 
you should do some interval training. You should do some circuit training. You should do some conditioning work, different types. You should do some strongman training. I think strongman training is would be very, very important for these things uh, to maintain just a, a ton of different things. And I, I think this is going to keep your muscle very, very healthy. So that way when you say, hey, cool, I've got this competition six months from now that I'm – now all of a sudden you can dial right back into your physique training. You can go right back into your diet that you know works for you really well. Boom. But you're set up. You're healthy. You're balanced. Everything is really well developed from a big level. Now you can boom, dial in, and you can get right back into your program that you like to do or whatnot. But then you got to come out of that and just do a lot more variety in the movement patterns and the exercise choices and the types of exercise. Do a spin class. Do do a Zumba class. Like Just pop into different things. Uh, to keep some overall resiliency. And again, I'm not saying like do yoga for six months. Mm -hmm. I'm saying like, you know, just pepper these things in, uh, just different types of things. Do a cardio kickboxing class or start doing jujitsu, whatever you want to do. Um, use those things with a, in a, just a little bit of dosage. And I think that's really going to be giving people the most well-rounded approach for long-term development. Is that more for kind of longevity and health reasons more than because obviously people might be thinking, oh, that sounds quite non-specific towards the sport of like bodybuilding, totally. for example. Is that what's the main, is that psychological, physiological? Well, all the above. I was not really referring to that as like a long-term health thing. Of course, mm -hmm. that's a whole separate conversation. Uh, I mean, if you want, I don't think that's what you want to do, but we can certainly talk about that. No, I was, I was referring to that as an approach specifically for people who are trying to do these things. So again, let me put context on that. I'm not saying coming out of your bodybuilding competition and then all of a sudden don't lift weights for four months. No, no, no. I'm saying still say to your four days a week lifting or something, but you add in one extra session of cycling or you, you know, maybe go from lifting five days a week to four days a week and two sessions are now intervals on the bike and you got one day where you're going to drag a heavy sled and one, it is nonspecific and that's the fucking point. Mm -hmm. uh, it, you can't be that. I don't believe you can be that specific. Well, I'll put it that. I don't believe most people can be that specific for 15 years and not run into to problems, mm -hmm. um, into joint problems, into development problems. So remember, the muscle is going to be going to get it very, very specific and efficient with what you're asking it to do. Uh, so here's an example: we we had a study where we took biopsies from people across a continuum. So this is people who are sedentary, people that are kind of recreationally active, people that are like, I'm a lifter, but like, you know, and I'm, you and I know what that means. Like, okay, you don't, you don't lift like we talk about lifting, but like you kind of like go to the rec center a couple times a week and hit a couple of machines. We had uh, power lifters, weight lifters, and all the way up to elite power lifters. And we looked at some of these signaling proteins that are responsible for hypertrophy. Now here's the key. So some of these proteins, in order for these things to act on the nucleus, they have to be activated. And so you have two things that are playing here. If I have a lot of these proteins, I'm much more likely to send a signal to the nucleus. But I could also have very small amounts of these proteins, but them activated at a very high percentage. So let's take you and all right now, Steve. So Steve, you have uh, this hypertrophy protein. You have 50 of them. I have 100 of them. Mm -hmm. Okay, well... If I'm activated at 5%, that means I have five total activated. If you're activated at 25%, even though you have way less protein, you get what I'm saying, yeah. right? So it's critical to understand these different types of this. It's not just about maximizing at all times. So anyways, what we found in this study is what happens over time is the total, it becomes extremely desensitized to the stimulus. 
And so that's the problem at the end of the spectrum. And it was a beautiful curve that ran across this entire continuum of different people. It's very, very difficult for your muscle to pay attention and, and respond to the exact same stimulus over time. And after, and now this is, again, these these at these people at the far of the spectrum were 15 or so years into their lifting career. Mm-hmm. That differed significantly from people who were five years into their lifting career. Career. And so this is what I'm talking about when I'm saying, hey, like long-term longevity in your sport. If you want to make sure you don't burn out, both even from a, a anabolic perspective, 10 years down the road, 15 down the road. It's very clear you're going to become extremely desensitized if you continue to do the exact same stimulus. You're not going to respond. So I was still referring specifically to your bodybuilding or physique or career that just a little bit of, of stuff. Again, you're still lifting a lot of the times a week, but maybe if you think about this from a 10-year perspective, you're you're 19 years old now and you're doing well on the regional circuit or something, but you really got your eyes on on a big, big competition. Well, it's probably going to take you, say, five years to get there. Well, you got to start thinking. Not you can't do your training that maximizes what, what's going to look at, at 19 or 20, because that's not going to continue to probably work until you're 25. So you got to start thinking. Okay, I'll sacrifice a little bit right now, if that allows me to gain another year at the back end or another year, two years at the back end. And this is really what I'm referring to. Is so peppering a little bit of this non-specificity in there. And yes, I can make up words. That's what you get to do when you're a doctor. <laughs> No, I, mean, uh, I think it's helpful. So that's kind of what I'm referring to. No, it sounds very familiar in some ways in terms of like staleness or um, accommodating resistance. We kind of heard of these things and something some bodybuilders do within their periodization. I think um, Brad even may well do this himself is kind of at least go through lower volume periods of time where they are training, maybe not doing their like isolation calf work and stuff they're just lifting like a power lifter maybe like sure. they're just using that as a way to because a lot of bodybuilders i think when you're talking about oh yeah go and do some yoga or this 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 they're thinking no way i can't do that but they might get into like lifting heavy or something like that so yeah but so you gotta also think here like you have to be you have to take take some logic here again uh, people that are oftentimes athletes and also call bodybuilders athletes in this frame um it's so deferred gratification is so hard. Yes. Right. Like you have to step back and think, okay, listen, fuckface. over your 12 year career, you think if you took two months, eight years ago and stepped away a little bit and did some other physical activity that wasn't specifically lifting, you think that's really going to make that big a difference at the end of your 12 years. Like, come on, like you, you have to, you have to honestly look me in the eye and think that makes a difference. And you, you can't do that with a straight face. You can't do those on honest eyes. So when I'm saying these things, uh, like my response is, you're being a baby. Like yeah. you're, you're being a child right now. Like I can't think of like, like, oh, okay. That's because you don't have a healthy relationship with, with what's going on. Yeah. You need to have a better, uh, whether that's you got mental stuff going on or something else, but you have to be honest and realistic. This is like, if I took six months, sorry, if I took, let's say six weeks, and instead of lifting four times a week, or five times a week, I went to four and a half times a week, or I went to three times a week, and one of those days, I still lifted, but I did strongman, uh, or I, I did a little bit of other stuff. Again, I'm not saying take two years off and do yoga. If you honestly think that will kill your gains, um, I think you're going to have struggle through your career. Mm-hmm. It's, it's going to be a tough go for you. So like that, you just have to be a little more realistic about that. Um, now, if you're like, hey, I just love lifting, I get it. Like, cool. What your body needs is you do a lot of other stuff you don't love doing, like eating broccoli all day with no flavor on it because you don't want to avoid calories. 
so it's the same thing. You have to give up something, right? And if you love lifting like you love ice cream, well, you give up the ice cream. So sometimes you have to give up a little bit of what you love over here too to get what you want. It's the same thing. Like you have to be able to make these sacrifices um, if you think that's the right answer. Now, if you think I'm like I'm wrong, well then, I, and I might be. Uh, but in general, you're probably going to need some variation. Mm-hmm. No, I uh, think this it, is what's going to help develop all the fiber types across time, anyways. Yeah, I think it's accepted among like you were talking about how we should listen to the practitioners who have coached thousands upon thousands of clients and things. I think it's fairly well accepted among them to have these sort of elements of variation at times where I think John Meadows is a fan of taking sure. extended time off during the season for that exact reason. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah, I think it's very similar to trainees who, and I think it is that's real talk in terms of they just, they, they have a psychological kind of need to train and it's like they don't want to take a deload or things like this. This has often happened and where once you've done it, you realize it helps mm. so much and I know every time I've gone through periods of time where I'm not pushing it like my physique training style I always come back feeling much much better just like I do after a deload um, and I don't know if Andy you have any ways of thinking where people might see this creeping in is this they just don't progress as well as they normally would if they're progressing fine do you think they don't maybe have to go through something like this uh, well both of that yes it, it could be a progression issue um, the difficult part about this is, is I don't think they're unlike overtraining, which there are a little bit more clear signs and symptoms of. Uh, I don't know if this would be a fatiguing plateauing could be it, but there could be a lot of other factors going on with that too. Um, could be diet, mm-hmm. could be sleep, could be mental. These other things could be going on, but that could be one certainly one sign of it. I don't think. I think that's a very, you have to be very careful with what you said at the second end there, which is, well, as long as I'm progressing, just keep doing what I'm doing, right? Uh, Be very careful there. Because again, as I mentioned, when you're 22, everything works. Like, trust me, I played college football as an athlete. Every fucking thing works. Mm -hmm. Everything works. You just continue to get stronger and bigger and everything's great. And all that, that back injury you had that killed you, you're out three weeks for. When you turn 30, you're out three months. When you turn 40, you're out three years. So like, trust me, everything works when you're there. So just because it's working when you're 18, 19, 21, 24, uh, and your diet's optimized and you don't have kids yet and you get to sleep 11 hours a day or, or nine hours a night plus your nap, yes. Uh, but if you're interested, again, being in this longer than the next six months or six, two or three years, you have to be realistic that there's a difference between working and optimal. Now, optimal is a bit of a fallacy. We'll never know that, but... We can certainly say is, hey, this, this looks like a, a better practice for most people, and you might be the one miracle person, but probably not. So you can roll the dice on you being a miracle, or you can say, hey, look, most people are doing better success doing it this way. I'm probably like that too. Mm-hmm. So I mean, no, no, but no, most it, people it, don't. It completely rings true to me, and I just think some people, and probably some of our listeners, kind of need to hear it. And um, so I, I love hearing you here's talk. A, here's what I would say: is I'll give you a bit of rule of thumb. If you can look back in the last six months and say, I haven't really made any substantial changes in my training program, it's time to change. Right. I mean, again, unless you've got a competition in the next four weeks, then don't, don't, don't make changes that drastic that close to competition ever. Uh, but if it's like, hey, I don't have anything on the books yet, or I have at least three months before my next thing, um, then, it, then it's really, really time to say, okay, look, I haven't done anything like this. And it can still be lifting based. Just make it more whatever circuit based 
or make it uh, whatever. Like, again, I keep saying strong, man. I think it's, it's fantastic for things like this because you can do lifting based things. You can still get after it. You can still get that, that thing. And you know what I mean when I say that thing, <laughs> but it just doesn't have to be like six different isolation exercises yeah. for the soleus. Okay, great. Let's move more. Let's do dynamic things. Let's, um, do whatever, whatever happens to be where the body just starts to move in angles and the muscles contract a little bit differently than they have. And there's a little bit of isolation going on and it's or isometric contraction, partly with a little eccentric thing. And then it's got a, t and it's just going to move it a little bit differently. And the stimulus is there. So that's what I would say is if you like look back and you say, ah, oh, well, I totally have changed my program. It's way different. Cause I used to do eights and now I'm doing thirteens. Like, okay, that's still pretty similar. You really haven't made a change. Let's go to fifties. Let's go to hundred. Let's do a little CrossFit thing. You know, let's just do let's just do a month, three weeks of CrossFit. Okay, great. Yeah, it's gonna be. Who cares about the pull up and all that well, gymnastics stuff? But so something like that will be a very big difference, uh, and it will change the, the muscle quite a bit. So I would do that. And if it's like, hey, look, you got 52 weeks of the year, and for three weeks of it, you did CrossFit. Like, you think that's gonna change? <laughs> you still did 49 out of 52 weeks on your way. I, I think you're gonna be just fine. So I mean, and unless you're competing for Mr you know, for the Arnold Classic title or something. Um, I think this is probably good advice for most people. No, I think so. And I think, I, I think it's difficult because people hear the key, uh, the key is consistency. So they're thinking, oh, my training, my nutrition needs to be the same over and over again. And you're kind of not, I, I don't think you're saying the key isn't the consistency. It's just they're almost interpreting that phrase a little bit wrongly, potentially. Yeah, you did that very well. Thank you for that. That's a very good clarification. Uh, yes, absolutely, I'm agreeing with you. But let's let's re reframe and identify what we mean by consistent. Uh, consistent doesn't mean literally the same thing over and over again. Mm -hmm. Like this is consistently being pretty good. Like we're consistently good. This means we're not going two months just giving our diet to shit. This means we're not going a month without ever doing anything. Um, so this is still consistent. Again, if we zoom out and say, well, was it consistent over five years? Well, yeah. If you trained pretty good for 45 to 52 weeks over five years and you add those numbers up and you start saying, well, shit, I was consistent for 200 out of 210 months. That's pretty damn consistent. It's a, that's a 95% rate. Like that's very, very, very consistent. So that, that's what we have to think about. Missing a half a day uh, is, is not going to do it or, you know, and so over the course of four weeks, if you miss a day, that hurts consistency. But when you start looking at this over the course of the year, then those percentages get very, very, very high. And, and people get, again, this false sense of, I think I said this on, I got a, I'm trying to remember because I got a, just a ton of blowback for this one. Because I think I said this on Joe Rogan's podcast when it's on there, but. Oh, wow. <laughs> I'm like, do you, do you think, do you really think muscle is that special and that precious that it really knows the difference between nine reps and 10? Like, Really? I mean, think about how physiology works. You think it really knows the difference? Of course not. Of course not. So when you start to think, like, do you think it really knows the difference between you working out 50 weeks and 51 weeks a year? Mm -hmm. Come on. Like, it, it just, there's no way that it's that specific. It, it's, it has so much, uh, so many different things that it's responsible for and so many different things that it's trying to do to keep you up and moving that... Like that's not the level of specificity that you need. That's not, in fact, that I would argue, again, that's probably bad. That's too much. Um, so, yes, consistency. Again, thank you for clarifying that. I'm, I'm not saying just like, oh, I'll just randomly do shit all over <laughs> here. That would be CrossFit, right? Like the opposite of programming, mm -hmm. the opposite of planning, which is not being overly specific. 
And I think I have a quote from you saying, I mean, the most important variables for growing muscle and one of them was consistency and the others were hardworking, be hardworking and adaptable. So I don't know if you want to go into the hardworking and the adaptable thing, especially the hardworking one, because I think um, some listeners might be thinking, well, that sounds like you're going easy by doing something like you're not your physique training and not your sticking to your diet. Um, whereas <laughs> actually, I think it's almost the opposite. It's kind of harder to take a step back. Yes, yes. Again, I'm, I'm in full agreement with what you're saying. Uh, we've already addressed that one piece of it, which is right, consistency and patience. Mm-hmm. You give it time, it's going to be there. And of course, the variables have to be right. You've got to be in a caloric surplus, has to be available amino acids, like et cetera there. You can't just be super consistent and not eat. You're not going to grow muscle. That's not going to work. But yeah, hard working is all those things. I say this all the time when I talk to the sport, like NFL guys and, and college football, it's not hard to motivate to be a strength conditioning coach for a division one football team to motivate them on max out days. Yeah. Because most of the reason, probably most of the guys or girls are division one athletes because they like that stuff anyways. It's not hard. I don't need to play Metallica. Like they're not going, <laughs> but it's really hard to do recovery Saturdays. Yeah. It's really hard to come in Saturday and do the maintenance stuff. It's that's the day where I'm like, Hey, we got to have a pep talk before. Like I need your focus because we're going to do this 20 minute calf stretching circuit with lacrosse balls and we're going to work on breathing with our diaphragm and I need you fucking focus today. Like this is not the day to go through the motion. And so I think that's exactly what I'm referring to here. It's the same thing. It's like, it is very hard to do those other things because if we look at this from a bit of a metaphysical perspective, it, it, is it hard work really if you're loving it? Yeah, it can be. Mm-hmm. But then like if you're enjoying it, are you really doing the hard thing? Well, maybe the hard thing again is doing the hard choice of like you made the hard choice with your ice cream, make the hard choice of doing something different, even mm-hmm. though it like fries, fries your brain for a minute. Cause, ah, oh, that's not your routine or that's not your thing. And you think you're going to lose all your muscle because you did sets of 25 today and sets of 12. Like, so it's giving up that stuff and going, look, I have to have this deferred gratification and I'm going to do the hard work today, which is do all this shoulder rehab and clean up my posture and my shoulder because that's why my shoulder keeps getting dinged up or that's why I get this neck pain because I'm a little bit out of position when I start adding mass and start adding volume over time. I got to go clean this gunk up and this is why my low back's hurting. So I got to rebuild my foot here because mm-hmm. every time I start getting in my competition cycle and I start squatting more and my low back starts to hurt and it's all because my, my big toe isn't working. Okay, great. Or my mobility's not there at my hips and that's why I'm getting junked up every time I get into my cycle prep. That's for these athletes. That's the hard stuff for normal day. People going to yoga might be, might be the yeah. easy stuff, but for you it might be hard. So it's making that decision of going like, fuck, I don't want to do this, but this is what needs to happen right now. So I got to go do this. No, definitely. And then in terms of being adaptable, is that the varying things when you need to, or what's that element? It's all of that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it, it's being adaptable and saying, look, this is not working. And I don't care that I think Steve Hall is the smartest guy ever, and he wrote this program for me, and I, I idolize him. Well, if it's not working, it's not working, mm-hmm. right? Or if it's um, it's being able to, to, to change things up and, and still respond and realize that it, when the muscle becomes exhausted, it becomes exhausted, and it doesn't always necessarily matter if it was, you know, which exact exercise you chose. Or, that stuff is far less important. Um, I mean, I'll go back to Ben Pekalski. He says this all the time beautifully. Uh, and I've been saying this for years too. Look, 
with fitness and physique and bodybuilding, the goal is to cause some sort of internal stimulus, right? So who the fuck cares what happens externally? That's all noise. Do whatever you want to do externally to cause the same muscle reaction. So if that means you, Steve, have to do a, a hammer curl and I need to do a cable crossover to get the exact same activation in the same spot on my bicep, mm-hmm. it, it, it's noise. It's all noise. We're yeah. trying to get the same internal stimulus. So that stuff doesn't matter. And so if you say, hey, look, my quads just don't grow when I do sets of, sets of 10, 12, 15. I'm just not getting there. I think I got to go do sets of one to five or sets of five to eight or whatever. They're growing better when I get to that rep range for my quads. Great. Maybe you have a fiber type difference. That's probably explaining it. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're very fast twitch and I'm slow twitch or the inverse or whatever it is. And so that's the adaptability you have to have is, is, is saying, look, uh, I'm going to do things differently and I'm going to give myself, I'm going to make sure my body knows how to use fat. I'm going to make sure it knows how to use carbohydrate. I'm not just going to stick to one diet because if I do that, I'm going to hedge my bet too far to one hole and I'll lose flexibility metabolically. Mm-hmm. I'm going to make sure I know, use how to, I, I, my body knows how to digest and absorb a bunch of different amino acid profiles so I can get there, right? So when I have availability, it, it's optimized and I'm not just all of a sudden maximized on leucine all the time. That's going to be a problem. So it's all those things. It's being adaptable uh, over time, both with a planned purpose and response of to change the stimulus. And hey, guess what? All that worked. And then you found out your, your girlfriend's pregnant. And <laughs> Like, you're not going to be able to sleep like you can. So how can I now change the schedule? Yeah. Things like that. No, I absolutely love, the, I love this entire discussion. And it's really just opened up kind of, I think a lot of people look at it and they think, oh, it just sounds like you need to be doing all these different things all the time. But I think when you actually take a sit, like sit back, you can almost periodize this entire thing whilst internally, whilst you're collecting data, you're analyzing things, maybe you're changing slight small things. And you can optimize as you're doing that as you go along. Um, and I think it just takes someone to conceptualize, step back, and really think about the long, bigger picture there. Yeah, another good clarification you just did there, and let me add a piece to that. I gave a ton of options there, but I was in no way suggesting to do all of those, particularly at one time. <laughs> I just gave a bunch of options. And so maybe you're sitting back at home and you decide, oh, I'll, I'm going to add, I'm going to try that little piece. Awesome. And somebody else hears that and goes, no, no, I don't, I'm not interested in that at all. But I'll, I'll try that little thing. And so, yes, again, I, I gave different options and tried to think of different examples. But I'm no way suggesting that a competitive bodybuilder should, at some point through the year, be doing CrossFit, should be doing Strongman, should be doing bodybuilding, should be doing yoga. Like, I'm not, I'm not saying that's what the, I'm saying at some point, maybe one of those elements is introduced mm-hmm. throughout the year. Uh, at one point they do one thing different with their diet or something like that and depending on how you work if you're gender how long you've been doing this if, if you're a gainer if not gainer that you can have different things to play with so you can find a way that that fits into your program mm-hmm. absolutely fantastic um and i know we're kind of limited on time and i want to absolutely respect that and absolutely thank you andy for coming on the show because i think You've really opened up uh, an element of the podcast we've never gone down. We've talked a lot about hypertrophy, a lot about muscle growth. I don't think these things have been spoken about in such a way before. So I think, and I want to thank you massively for myself and the listeners. Great. Worst episode of the whole season. (laughs) Yeah, you just called everyone out. So uh, (laughs) we'll make sure everyone gets to see that. If people want to learn more about you, your work, your podcast, uh, where should they reach out to you, Andy? Just follow me at bradshawenfeld.com. <laughs> Everything I say is just regurgitating what he says. So <laughs> I'm just kidding. Um, my website's easy. I'm on the internet, andygalpin.com. Social media, Instagram is 
if you like getting the direct access, because I, I pretty much tweet out science and performance stuff for the most part, so uh, it's easier for me to direct link to the papers that I'm talking about and stuff in Twitter, so follow there. If you just want to see sort of the picture of it and my analysis or breakdown of it, then Instagram is a lot easier. Um, so just Dr. Andy Galpin on both of those, but don't, I swear to fucking God, if you follow me on Instagram and then get pissed that I don't have a direct link in my bio, I'm blocking your ass. <laughs> God, Google the title. <laughs> Perfect. And um, I'll yep. make sure that's all linked in the description below. And I have to say the perspective you have on studies and things is always fascinating for me. So yeah, it's, I, I recommend giving Andy a follow. So once again, thank you. And thank you all for listening. <laughs>